Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we're into extra time. Kia ora koutou katoa and welcome to Extra Time. I'm Clay Wilson. Joining me on today's podcast, we have RNZ rugby reporter Joe Porter, RNZ sport columnist Hamish Bidwell, and RNZ sports editor Stephen Hewson. New Zealand moved out of full-scale lockdown back to alert level 3 this week, but sport as we knew it pretty much still ceases to exist. Golfers, tennis players and lawn bowlers have been able to return in a restricted form, but competitions of any kind remain absent. The first code sports fans will see back on their screen still looks to be rugby league. But the NRL's planned return date of May 28th is yet to be a sure thing, with several key factors still being discussed and finalised. Adding to the headaches for the NRL is a handful of players breaking social distancing rules. So let's start there this week. Hamish, you touched on this a couple of weeks back, but these kinds of stories don't really bode well for a competition which, in the form it's being proposed, is going to be played under pretty strict health and safety guidelines. It's a bit of an all-round shambles because you've got the governing body who are driving um, the May 28 return, but they don't have any details around that. There's no protocols. They'll claim that they've spoken to government agencies, whether it be at state or national level, and it turns out they haven't. Um, there's no pay structures organised. Um, there's no logistics. The Warriors, for instance, don't know exactly where they're going, whether they'll be able to train when they get there. And then you throw into the mix players who just for wonder, who just don't seem to be able to help themselves in rugby league. They don't know how to behave. Um, what I would say in their defence is that professional athletes, particularly in, in teams, don't really know how to fend for themselves. They're, they're told where to be, what to wear, what to eat, what to say, what to do most of their time. And as soon as they left their own devices, they do daft stuff. And I wrote weeks ago that um, players would be selfish, players would be silly, and the whole thing would fall over. And I still think that'll be the thing that, 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 falls, that makes the whole thing fall over. But the fact that the players are sort of threatening to strike, but still acting like gumboots, the fact that the, the governing body don't have any details, the fact that the governments haven't signed off on any of this stuff makes it always the same at the start, an all-round shambles. Stephen, we know NRL players don't have a great track record. This continues. What do you think might happen if we get into this situation? Are, we going, are they going to be able to get through a period like this without someone making a stupid mistake? No. <laughs> no, no, they can't. I mean, because like Hamish said, they, they I'm, to be honest, I'm surprised um, that they haven't um, cocked up to any greater degree, really, to, 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 to what we've already seen. I mean, what we have seen from out motorbike riding, out TikToks with, a, with half a dozen people from outside various bubbles and things, um, Nathan Cleary there, um, is... Is possibly at the lower end of possibly of some of the um, behaviour we might have expected to see. I mean, Hamish touched on there too the whole lack of any sort of guidelines or structure around the proposed competition. I mean, in a sense, the players are only reflecting the administrative capabilities of the NRL. I mean, it is a complete shambles when it comes to trying to organise this competition and the fact that the Warriors are still actually unclear on, on where things are going when they're supposed to be leaving on May fourth to, to go to. Australia to, to join a competition. I mean, uh, uh, that's surprised me, I think, more than anything else. In fact, I mean, we, we, we didn't 
I mean, we're not surprised that the NRL is disorganised or uh, it, that's got its administrative problems, but I think the level of or lack of um, ability to be even organised to, to a small degree has, has shown through, and that, that surprised me to, to, to oh, would be the biggest surprise I've seen out of all of this. It's crazy. Just yeah, how... if you're going to say we're going to start on this day, then you must know how exactly you plan to do that. If you don't have any plans, then then announcing a date seems a bit premature, doesn't it? Exactly. I mean, you've come up with you'd think that they have a bunch of scenarios, wouldn't you? Okay, we'll get, if we have a ten week competition, this is how it's going to pan out. Um, if we start back on May twenty eighth and we're going to go through to October for a final, this is how it might pan out. If we're going to have no competition at all. Uh, you know, you, you would think that they've got a variety of scenarios that they would map out, um, like most businesses are doing over this period. To, to as sort of we move out of various lockdowns and what might be possible and what may not be possible. Um, I mean, amidst all of this, of course, they've you know the CEO's gone, um, but yeah, the, the, just the complete lack of I suppose communication around it and, and just to, to to what the hopes are is quite staggering. And let's be honest, in terms of the um, players playing up, these are the only ones we know about because they've been on social media. There are rumours of other photos and videos circulating. I mean, you assume human nature being what it is and rugby league players being what they are, that other guys are playing up, but they just haven't put it on social media. And even when it did occur, you had Nathan Cleary in theory, a clean skin, you know, a really nice, clean-cut lad whose father is his coach and, again, is a really upstanding citizen in theory, saying, oh, yeah, these Sheila's popped around. I don't know anything about it. Next thing you know, it emerges he's been doing dance routines with them. I mean, you know, you do a mea culpa, but apparently you don't, you bury the angle or you bury the lead. You know what I mean? Like, so it's really hard to take these people at face value and to trust them, isn't it? It is. And I would think you, you mentioned there about others not going on social media. If they haven't managed to do that, I'd possibly give them a, a, a tick in the box for actually showing some intelligence after all, because uh, usually <laughs> people at that sort of age, um, I mean, it's, what they're doing is undoubtedly simply what other people of their similar age are doing. But the fact is, obviously, with their profiles, um, yeah, if, if they haven't gone on social media, maybe that's a step in the, the right direction to, to some level. Yeah. With that's what I'd like to ask Joe. Like, you're significantly younger than, say, Stephen and I, for instance. Um, what's the go with people wanting to document their lives via some social media channel? Yeah, I personally don't give it. It doesn't. It's not something I'm interested in doing. Uh, but I do have friends who, yeah, uh, document most of their lives on Facebook and Instagram. Several stories a day with them and their kids and whatever they're up to, and constant. So, for some people, I guess there's um, there's a desire to share whatever they're doing. Validation comes from the likes and the comments and all that sort of stuff that goes online. It gives people a boost of social status. They feel better about themselves. There are studies that suggest that you know if you post social media posts, the more likes and favorable comments and engagement, so to speak, they get, the, it releases endorphins in your brain, similar to what would happen if you took ecstasy and that sort of thing. So there are elements of it, I think, that are addictive. There are elements of it that give you a sense of self-worth. Uh, obviously, there are plenty of counter-arguments that suggest it's pretty bad to have your locus of self-worth based on social media, but that's a, a topic for a different day. So I think that it's something that is very, very popular. There's an element of competition, an element of my life looks better than yours, an element of needing to show that your life is, is the, you know, what it's supposed to be, especially as a footballer. I, I assume it's an NRL player. You're supposed to be living a glitzy and glamour, glamorous life. So they want to be showing that off to the world as part of the, the, the psyche of the young man that supposedly come from nothing and now has riches. Uh, I just, yeah, it is, it is a, a new phenomenon, but something that we're going to see, I think, for a long time yet. 
is my, it? At my generation, I think, is, is half and half. Some of us are a bit, um, a fairly hold social media at arm's length, like myself. I don't like posting photos of my, my kids or anything like that online. I just wouldn't want to do it. It's not really, I don't find that kosher. But just your dogs, mate. happy to share every, every last detail. Yeah, the dogs don't have a say in that. <laughs> <laughs> so just looking at where we are with this situation, I mean, it is bizarre. We're almost 48 hours from the Warriors supposedly being due to get on a plane to fly out to Australia, but we still don't know if they're going. Does this whole, the further we get into this situation... Does it just reek of how desperate the, the NRL are? I mean, the, the uncertainty around the competition and the Warriors this late in the piece, does that just just show that the, the NRL perhaps have bitten off a bit more than they can chew? It's just a lot of greed. Like, people aren't playing... People like to talk about... An altru- they like to talk altruistically and say, oh, we want to do something for the morale of the, of the nation and the people and just give people something to look forward to on Friday night and all that kind of stuff. But they, they don't want to resume competitions purely for money, whether it's the... English Premier League or the NBA or, or the NRL. Um, people are furiously in the background in rugby circles trying to cobble together, you know, sort of piecemeal competition, not because, you know, they, they, they care about the game or they care about, you know, whether, whether our Saturday nights are going to be more fulfilling with a bit of footy on. They're doing it for money. And um, when you think greed, with greed in mind and when you think um, without care for good taste or, or people's well-being in mind, then you will make decisions in a bit of a haphazard fashion. And, and that's what we're seeing, I think. Well, speaking of rugby, New Zealand rugby, a big announcement yesterday. They had their AGM, and the big news out of it was the financial figures, an overall loss of $7.4 million, but actually $4 million less than what they projected. However, that's also in the backdrop of a prediction of the coronavirus crisis, meaning revenue could be down up to 70% for the upcoming financial year. They seem to be pretty confident. They've got $93 million cash reserves in the bank, and that's going to get them through. But, Joe, just how serious is this financial situation for New Zealand rugby? Well, you'd have to think it's pretty damn serious. I mean, they're looking at a loss in revenue, like you said, of 70% over 2020 and a, and a worst kind of case scenario. Um, they reckon they've got the cash reserves to survive that if it does pan out and there's no rugby for the rest of the year. So it's a, it's a massive blow for them. I mean, they're going to be making redundancies all over the left, right and centre. Mark Robinson pointed to that yesterday without going into too much detail. You'd imagine that obviously the players' wages have been, have, we know they've been frozen. They're staring down the barrel. Some of them are 50% pay cuts, many of them 15 to 30% if rugby doesn't start again. Uh, do they take the little extra little bit of money? I think it's £7.5 million from World Rugby they're offering, which they usually get at the end of the next four year cycle. Do they take that now and help themselves bail themselves out? I guess they, they have the money to survive it, but at what will they be like at the other end if there is no rugby? A shell of the organisation, I would imagine. It would be a decimation of their ranks and what's going on. It would, you know, it's it's not something they want to deal with. However, tens of millions of dollars is what they're looking at losing next year. They reckon slightly less than the 93 million they have in cash reserves. So what? They will survive, but in what kind of shape? I'm not sure. They really do need some rugby to be played in international rugby at that, and that's looking increasingly unlikely this year unless it's Trans Tasman. The thing that freaked me out yesterday, from what I heard at the AGM, was that. The revenue stream they have in mind is this nation's championship, um, a global sort of test competition, which was mooted a, a year or two ago, and players knocked it down because they felt the travel burden was, was too high. Now, um, desperation means that that's back on the table. New Zealand want Gus Pichot to uh, become the World Rugby Chairman when that's decided um, this weekend. And uh, part of that is because the Six Nations um, teams, backed by the incumbent chairman Bill Bonnell, uh, knocked that down. Well, they weren't interested in it. Anyway, so 
a nation's tournament to me is just a disaster. It's absolutely the last thing that rugby needs, especially New Zealand rugby. I've said long and loud that I think they really really need to re-engage with the community game. I think they need to make our domestic competitions meaningful and worthwhile. And a nation's tournament will put every resource that New Zealand rugby has squarely onto the All Blacks. There'll be more guys playing less Super Rugby, more guys, um, more funding going away from Black Ferns, from age group, from club, provincial. And I just think that's just a, a model that's not going to work. I think that they at that point they're looking for private equity companies and TV networks to save them. They're not creating new revenue streams, and I think they need to. And I think they need, as I keep saying, to re-engage with the public. I don't think um, far off, far-flung multinational tournaments are, are the way forward for rugby. I, I agree with what Hamish is. I agree with what Hamish is saying. But the thing is, the, th- the things that pay the bills are the broadcast revenue, and that's the only way they're going to fund that, that top-level league game. That's that's the issue they've got, and they still how they work around that. Um, Oh, I'm not sure, but but it's the broadcast deals that, that get them the, the bucks. Okay, so we stop paying our leading rugby players big bucks. That's not going to change over in the Northern Hemisphere. While things might be tough there financially at the moment, and, you know, two, three years down the track, we're going to go back to the same scenario of all the clubs over and overseas will be still hanging out with the big bucks, and they're the ones that will be chasing, and that's where the players will be heading off to. If we're prepared to say, okay, you can go, um, but we're trying to keep the domestic competition and, and club rugby and, and things strong, which which is which is all good, um, but you will still see the top players go. And, and the thing that's bankrolling it all is still broadcast deals. I don't think that's going to change. No, but broadcasters no. are increasingly playing less. There's, there's there's less demand for from the networks for the product because the product's simply not very good. And I I'll always believe that if New Zealand put its eggs in a domestic more of a domestic basket and said and it made a showcase for their own players, people will want to watch that no matter where they are in the world, and they'll pay to watch that. And I just think that going to play in Tokyo or Bloemfontein or wherever um, in, a, in a super comp that we've had. I just think that was a, a broken model. I didn't think that, you know, the excitement in Springbok rugby, that had gone out. We didn't watch them anymore. I, I said elsewhere that the last time that the All Blacks played the Springboks at Eden Park was 2013. That's how much of a second-class game that had become. They were shunting them off to Albany and Christchurch and Wellington because it wasn't the public interest in watching the All Blacks play the Springboks. Fair dinkum. That's the biggest game we've got. And people weren't interested in it anymore because the model was broken. And I don't think that going back to a, the same model or a bigger version of a, of a similar but bigger version of that model is going to work. So I think people had, had had enough. I really do. And they will never get a better opportunity to do something different. Say, so, hey, we were stuck with something. We didn't really like it. Let's do something completely different and see if that works. I can't see a domestic model being attractive to overseas countries. As, as I mean, yes, it might reinvigorate it here in the sense that, and we'd have some big names playing, you know, whatever you want to call it, old NPC style. But that's, and while that might be good and plenty of interest here, I, I just can't see that being a, a, a selling point for overseas rugby watchers. Then you may be right, and that may be that may be true. But I think it's something that needs to be considered. I think that when I hear that they're going. For, for the nation's championship, I, I shake my head a little bit. I think that's it's just it's an expedient way out. I don't think it's a long-term uh, sustainable model. I think the noises they're making already would suggest, Hamish, that the provincial competitions are perhaps even under threat. Super Rugby looks to be oh, fully. Absolutely. Uh, something they're desperate to maintain for whatever reason they think that's the good re- model to go down. It looks like, if anything goes, it will be domestic competitions, which is a little bit scary. I mean, they're talking about the five super franchises keeping them alive as being absolutely vital to the game. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of this Atatipu review, whether it'll be 
following the company line or if it does suggest something dramatic like you're talking about. I mean, Brent MP said yesterday at the moment, the MPC is sold as sort of like an extra add-on package that some broadcasters pick up overseas and if they play it, they get a small percentage just comes back to the MPC. Would they be able to market it, sorry, to the NZR, would they be able to market it as with all your All Blacks in it and a bit of a bit more glitz and glamour, something that they could sell as a total package and, and, and leverage off broadcast rights there as, and of course, international rugby still needing to play a fair bit of that to get some money. Can they perhaps, I doubt it'll ever happen, convince the Six Nations teams to do a revenue, a different share of the revenue model? You know, when the All Blacks go to Twickenham, can they split the gate takings and do the same when England come here? I doubt the Northern Hemisphere teams want a bar of it. But they need to figure out some way of making money because eventually they'll just lose the race and all the good players will go overseas for the big bucks, the Northern Hemisphere or Japan. Who knows what's going to happen to the top league in Japan? But... Um, yeah, overseas, and that you end up with a sort of a second a second class of play here because we can't afford to keep them. But I'm, I'm not sure that the NZR is making any noises really about strengthening the community of the game. I think they're probably going to turn their eyes the other way, which is a little bit sad because you're right, it's an opportunity lost. Uh, rock and a hard place, perhaps. I'm not sure. No, you're well, right. I, I mean, think the Infinity report, which was published in February, one of the key planks of that was was contracting kids from from first fifteen straight to super and, and doing away with the the club and provincial pathway. And I get that, and I know that that's the road they yeah, want to go yeah. down. I just saying that it's on a road that I fancy myself. I think the other problem they've got too is that the only way anything is going to change is if Bill Beaumont doesn't win that vote. I mean, you can expect more of the same if he does. Agreed. Any hope totally. for ch- any hope for change relies with Peashot getting the nod, and I, you know, he might go close, but I don't know. I, I mean, Joe might have a, or Hamish might have a better view than me, but uh, I'm not sure that will happen. Might go close, but I think Bill Beaumont will hang on. Yeah, I guess it comes down to probably what he's um, what he's promised to those Pacific Island nations that seem to have the vote swing there. With all you know, you know, lined up to to back Peace Shot and um, the Six Nations teams to back Beaumont, and then a few of the other tier two teams there apparently had been convinced to back Peace Shot for a chance at change. Looked like Fiji was maybe going to come down to the deciding vote. The, the, the Samoan Prime Minister, who's also the president of their rugby union, was apparently leaning towards voting towards Bill Beaumont simply because Beaumont had promised to look at the eligibility rules surrounding former All Blacks essentially going back to play for Pacific Island Nations and make some changes there. Whether that carrot dangled was big enough or not, I'm not sure. Uh, what a, a swing vote in the hands of Frank Bainey Marama in Fiji, that was a strange end situation for it to end up as, but you imagine that if he wanted to have any hope of some real change for the Pacific Islands and rugby, he would have voted for the peace shot, but you just don't know what the old boys club has promised them. I know there's big connections with France and Fiji and they would Yeah, that's right. That's the complication for France. So, Air rugby's bankrolled by yeah. France. They, they take all the yeah. best Fijian talent from secondary school yeah. to France and, and so they'll have to vote in a French block. They'll have to and I, I can't see yeah. that that's it's a vote for And that's shot. to Beaumont because I think Laporte yeah. is sort of his running mate. So it's, yeah, that that means that it's gonna. You might be right. Stephen Peshot falls just short, and therefore we do remain. The status quo remains for a while. Yeah, and you know those Pacific Island countries. A lot of the time, um, the people at the top aren't necessarily looking out for the grassroots game in their backyards as much as they're looking out for their own back pockets. Well, I guess we'll know in a couple of weeks' time what the, what the result is, and and then go forward from there for the. P-Shot does go forward as New Zealand rugby hope, then maybe we might see some of that change. Just to finish up this week, a couple of um, different topics. Looking at cricket, there's been some talk about ball tampering in cricket. Um, Obviously, with the nature of the crisis we're going through, um, the use of saliva to 
to shine the ball is going to be questionable in, in the near future. Some talk about players being allowed to put their nails into into the ball and do other things to, to make the ball behave differently. Stephen, what do you think about the suggestion? Uh, it's a bit of a slippery slope, isn't it? Um, I don't know. Maybe we just go straight to sandpaper. That might be the best bet. Um, I mean, you've still got uh, sweat and things that players can use on the ball. Um, I don't know, you start rubbing it on the gra- ground. I don't know. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one, but I can't really see... By allowing more, more or changing it, it sort of just brings into play the opportunity to sort of do all sorts of things. Um, I know bottle caps and things might be one that people remember, sort of uh, how perhaps uh, Chris Pringle got seven wickets against Pakistan. Um, they worked out what the Pakistanis were doing and then went with uh, went with the same the same approach. Um, the uh, the other option is, I suppose, you know, you don't have of anything. Um, that said, the game's pretty much skewed uh, towards the batsman now, um, in the sense that you know you've got much bigger bats than they used to even 20 years ago. Um, so anything that um, you take away from the bowlers possibly just disadvantages the field inside even more. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm not quite sure how you'd. I mean, if, yeah, you're going to have to have very, very strict regulations around it and the monitoring of it, and we've all seen how difficult that can be. Hamish, do you think it's something we should look at? I mean, the ball behaving differently is a is a key part of the game and a key advantage the bowlers have. Actually, I think some of the most entertaining cricket we see nowadays is when the ball does move around a bit and we see batsmen under a, a little bit of duress. Do you think it's something they could they could look at to make sure this element of the game doesn't go away in a sort of post-COVID-19 era? Yeah, I'm 100% in favour of anything that, that puts the ascendancy, uh, gives the ascendancy to the bowlers. I think um, cricket's a better game when um, the bowlers are, are on top and batsmen have to work hard for runs. I think there's nothing duller than um, guys trundling in at 120 clicks and all the fieldsmen out and guys just, you know, pumping the ball around. I just think the runs don't have any currency and there's no anticipation. There's no, I think I don't want to sound like too much of a... Uh, you know, some words that they use in is it French word, frisson. There's a bit of a frisson about what might happen when the ball, you know, is delivered. Um, and I'm in, I'm into that. Um, I, I think tampering would be great. It was interesting. I heard um, a podcast that Ian Gould, the retired test umpire, gave uh, the other day to the BBC, and he was talking about ball tampering. He was involved in the match where the sandpaper actually did come out in Cape Town. He was the third umpire. But he talked about some of his on-field experiences too, and without wanting to put words in Ian's mouth, it sounded very much like he'd seen some pretty dubious things over many years, but just let them go. I think Stephen's concern was how will we police these things? How can we regulate them? What, what will one thing lead to another? Well, I think the umpires are well aware of what one thing lead to another as, as it was. And that they were, they were, they, they pretended they didn't see things or they let things slide, but they saw, you know, people were sandpapering their hands. You know I mean? You've got all this tape on your hand and you've rubbed it. You know, David Warner was famous these massive bandages on his hands that had abrasive material on it and Australia got reverse swing and then they stopped wearing the tape and then no one reverse swings the ball anymore. That added some excitement, didn't it? Whether you get to 50, 60 overs and the ball starts going Irish, that's, it, it brings an element of intrigue to the game. And so I would, yeah, I'd be fully in favour of it. I know I've waffled on a bit here, but I, yeah, I would fully be in favour of, um, of, of anything that makes the ball talk. Well, we know Australia would be in favour of it, I guess. That'd be a starting point, at least. Well, anything involving anything involving talking, and they'd be up for it. 
<laughs> Rightio, just finally this week uh, in football, FIFA talking about stopping spitting on the field. Something's been going on in on-field sports for for a while now, but I guess given what we're going through now, handing out yellow cards for people spitting, I mean, personally, I'm in favour of anything that makes footballers behave better on the field. Joe, what do you make of the suggestion? Uh, I don't know. It, it must be. It'll be pretty hard to teach these guys that have been doing it all their life. Like if you, I don't know. I'm not sure if it was one of those people that particularly spat playing sport. But sometimes you do get stuff in your mouth, and I imagine I would have it at points, no doubt, playing rugby. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's going to be. Like, they'll do it, and then the second after they've done it, they'll realise they've done wrong. I don't know if the yellow card deterrent is going to teach people instantly not to spit on the field. I think you just find out you'll just be giving out a whole bunch more yellow cards than you ever had before, and the problem won't go away. It might take three seasons to condition players or something like that to do it. You know, this sort of reminds me of how the um, was it? A, there's a qual, a certain animal that's in Australia that had been moved to some sanctuaries off 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 the main island where there were no dingoes, and it only took about three or four generations for this wombat or this little marsupial, whatever it was, to forget about its main predator. So when they were reintroduced from onto the mainland, they just got eight while the dingoes because they weren't used to seeing them again. And I think it's the same sort of thing. You know, you can't, you're not going to teach these footballers to not spit on the field in one season just by telling them off of the other guys. I don't think it'll work. Yeah, it's, it comes. It's just things people that you know, the rugby field, the football field, that, that they just do it without without even thinking. You know, it's runners, whatever. It's they go around the track. You know, you see them spitting it. You know, it's obviously you wouldn't say it was pleasant, but you know. It, when, you, when there's physical activity involved like that, you know, you, the body expectorates. <laughs> My wife's not a big sports fan, but um, if she does bother to watch it, the first thing she knows is all the dudes spitting or blowing snot out their nose and then rolling around. And, how can they fight? How can they tackle each other? <laughs> you know, snot. And I was like, yeah, well, they, they like it. They don't seem to notice. And so, yeah, I'd, uh, uh, um, a listening of that would be probably, you know, probably nice right now. Perhaps that's a good place to... To wrap it up there for this week, thanks to Hamish, Joe and Stephen for joining me and of course thanks to you out there for listening. Stay safe and we'll catch up with you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.